Good afternoon, and welcome to today's Jewish Policy Center webinar. I am Shoshana Bryant, Senior Director of the JPC, and your host. And thank you for your uh, graciousness that we're starting a little bit late. We had a technical problem, but I think we're good now. Before we go to our speaker, Dakota Wood, here is your JPC commercial. We were established in 1985 as a nonprofit organization to provide perspectives and analysis of foreign and domestic policy by scholars, academics, and commentators. You can find us on the website at jewishpolicycenter.org, and you can read our insight articles there, as well as In Focus magazine um, and our blog in context. As an um, organization that sits slightly to the right of center, the JPC advocates for small government, low taxes, free trade, fiscal responsibility, energy security, free speech, and intellectual diversity. We support a strong American defense capability, U.S.-Israel security cooperation, and missile defense. We support the legitimacy and security of Israel against anyone who would deny them. This series of calls began early in 2020, in the early stages of the Wuhan virus. I know, that's politically incorrect. I generally call it the communist Chinese government virus. Over time, as many of you know, we've covered a lot of ground, foreign and domestic, but it always seems to come back to China. We have done uh, China's own responses to the virus, China in Hong Kong, China in the Middle East, China as a national security issue between the United States and Israel, China and Hong Kong, and lots more. As we approach 2023, there appears to be a broader consensus about China, uh, both military and technological threats that it poses to the United States and to our allies. That's good news. The less good news is that American efforts to address the threat appear to be lacking. Our question today is, what can the new incoming Congress do to rebalance the scales? Our guest, Dakota Wood, is going to address precisely that question. Dakota served in the United States Marine Corps, retiring as a lieutenant colonel. While he was in the Marines, he was a strategic analyst for the Commandant and later assigned to the Office of Net Assessment, which is the Secretary of Defense's uh, internal think tank. After retiring from the Corps and before Heritage was lucky enough to get him, Dakota was a senior fellow at the Center for Strategic and Budgetary Assessments. He is presently Senior Research Fellow for Defense Programs at Heritage, where his work is focused on how and how well the United States can protect its people and promote our critical national security interests. He is the editor of the Index of U.S. Military Strength. And I have to say, as a layperson, this is something worth reading if you have any interest in American defense policy. It is written for people to read. It's not Pentagonese. It's something that you should read and that you should understand. Um, and we've been lucky enough at the JPC to have Dakota write for In Focus Quarterly on occasion. You can find him in the fall 2022 issue answering the question, is the United States still a superpower? I won't tell you the answer, you have to go read it. In all of these positions, he participated in a range of comparative analyses of the military, technological, political, economic, and other factors that govern relative military capabilities. He's traveled to over 50 countries uh, and through most of the world's oceans and seas, including multiple deployments to Asia and the Mediterranean region, NATO support operations in the Balkans, contingency operations in West Africa, and his work has covered conventional operations against a nuclear-armed adversary. 
this we should talk about someday uh, in relation to Ukraine. Also, the response of <clears throat> the U.S. response options to the imminent failures of large states, China or Russia. That's another one on our topic. Dakota, we're going to call on you a lot. Good. Irregular warfare and the proliferation of advanced technologies and weapons. There is nobody, I think, better to talk about Congress and defense and how Congress can make us safer and better than Dakota would. Dakota, the floor is yours. Well, I'll tell you what a blessing to be with you. Thanks for having me uh, on your program. I always love talking with you. If the opportunity to write for your journal uh, quarterly, um, it, it's just a, a great outreach effort to try us to convey uh, a lot of really complicated issues, you know, that are so fundamentally important to the United States and, you know, liberal Western democracies and you know, those forms of government uh, in an easily accessible way. And that's why I really appreciate the work that the Jewish Policy Center does. Uh, on this topic of China, um, could we get any bigger, you know, on this particular issue? And and it has to do with really perceptions of countries, dependencies between countries, and whether countries are really exhibiting uh, a seriousness, you know, and how they go about uh, conducting themselves and engaging the world. And I think what we see on the China side is a lot of intentionality. You know, they're very, very serious in investing in their economic relationships with others. Witness Xi Jinping's uh, visit to Saudi Arabia, you know, to talk about increased uh, energy and trade ties, uh, handling that very well from a Chinese perspective. The United States, you know, is not done so well in that regard. Uh, investment in their military, you've seen this explosive, expansion of Chinese military capabilities uh, over the last uh, 15 or so, 20 years. Uh, just 15 years ago, the Chinese Navy uh, was barely more than 200 ships. Today, 360 ships and growing, and they're projected to hit 400 ships within the next uh, few years. Meanwhile, our Navy shrank from uh, just shy of 600 uh, during the Reagan administration, down to about 298 today. So, I mean, just looking at naval power, there is a seriousness uh, in China's efforts, uh, a lack of seriousness in the United States' efforts. So, you know, in, in one regard, if you wanted to prevent war, well, that's what deterrence is all about. And deterrence is in the mind of, of the person or the country to be deterred. You know, do they believe that you're serious, that you have the ability to thwart their efforts or not? And so if the perception of the United States is that we're not serious, uh, that we're not making appropriate investments, that we're spread too thin in too many parts of the world, then the deterrent value of American power rapidly erodes and it invites opportunistic exploitation. You know, it invites bad behavior and aggression that would otherwise be kept in check. Look at the weakness of NATO member countries in Europe and the fact that, that Vladimir Putin decided the time was right to invade Ukraine. You know, would he have done that if he thought the response to that would have been very vigorous and very effective? So he assessed the time was right, the West was weak, and he made his move. The same thing can be said about China or Iran or North Korea. Economically, 
is the United States seen as an economic heavyweight? Well, in some ways, yes. We've got a massive GDP. We have massive trade relationships with many other countries and regions. And yet we've hit, what, $31 trillion in public debt. Uh, We've got unrestrained spending and all sorts of government subsidies. Uh, Regulations are through the roof. Uh, You know, how long can you sustain that? Right. Is this a business friendly country? Uh, Do we do we put too many restrictions on our trade relationships where a country like India or China makes it very, very easy to conduct uh, trade at much closer distances? You know, geography also matters. We're six or seven thousand miles from the Indo-Pacific. If you're Vietnam or Cambodia or the Philippines, you really have to more closely watch and account for a behemoth like China with a 1.2 billion person market, uh, easy money in some ways, even if the regime in Beijing is is evil, it's completely odious. You know, it mani- manifests a, 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 a surveillance state. It imprisons its own people, whether it's the Uyghurs up to 2 million or its own Han Chinese where they're sometimes welded into their apartments in these apartment buildings, you know, in this zero COVID transition transmission policy uh, enacted by uh, Xi Jinping and his uh, his cohorts. So again, these perceptions of countries is really really important in these larger competitions. And so, I mean, getting to the heart of the matter, and, and I tried to spell out some of this in the article that you mentioned in the fall uh, fall issue of In Focus, and and that has to do with the shrinkage of the American military, uh, the aging of the military, and 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 the decline in readiness. You know, I mentioned Navy numbers from just shy of six hundred to below three hundred uh, during nineteen late nineteen eighties, we'll say nineteen eighty eight. The U.S. Army had almost 800,000 soldiers in the active component. Uh, Today, it has fewer than 460,000, and the Army itself projects that it will shrink to as low as 445,000 by the end of next year. The U.S. Air Force during the Cold War had 29 squadrons based in Europe alone, another 14 squadrons of fighters in the Indo-Pacific or in the Asia region. So 29 in Europe, 14 in uh, in Asia, and, and a lot more of those back here in the continental United States. Today, the total active duty Air Force has just 32 squadrons, right? It's 32. We only have five uh, in uh, Europe and, and a paltry few in Asia as well. So what is China's perception of the United States? With a Navy fewer than 300 ships, uh, we keep about 100 of those deployed on a daily basis. Of that 100, about 60 are in the Indo-Pacific. So 60 U.S. vessels, 360 Chinese naval vessels and their warships and their Navy, plus all of the shore-based capabilities that they can influence anything they want to do in the East and South China Seas, against Taiwan, you know, easily within a few hundred miles of China's coastlines. So I know I'm throwing a lot of numbers out there, but this is a case where numbers really matter. You know, it's a physical manifestation of the value uh, that a country puts on capabilities and relationships 
It's a physical manifestation of priorities. Uh, does the United States want to invest appropriately in having a presence in other regions that reassures allies, that actually deters uh, competitors or adversaries or enemies, is how we should probably characterize China. Uh, our trade relationships, are we a net importer? Or are we a net exporter? Does our energy policy intentionally and methodically hamstring us, right? Where we refuse to extract energy that is found in abundance uh, on the North American continent, <clears throat> such that we become more dependent on foreign sources of energy like Venezuela, right? And, uh, you know, corrupt Mexico or Russia. I mean, it just doesn't make sense. So uh, we might feel good about ourselves at home, but the image that we project into the, into the world consciousness is one of turmoil, of weakness, of uh, uh, ill discipline or undiscipline in our spending habits, and certainly a, a dramatic lack of investment in the military component of national power, which when economic relationships fail and diplomacy doesn't work, that military peace secures your interests, right? And imposes by force what you feel is important to you. It keeps other people from running roughshod over that. And our military is half uh, the size that it was. Uh, the major pieces of equipment are very old. The average age of an Air Force fighter is 32 years old. Our Minuteman III ICBM, the intercontinental ballistic missiles that carry nuclear warheads, those were put in the ground in silos in the early 1970s. They were only meant to be there for 10 years, but now 50 years later, it's the same missiles in those same silos, right? Uh, the major pieces of equipment that the Army uses were introduced in the 1970s, 80s, and early 90s. So the Abrams main battle tank is 30 years old, and the Army doesn't even have a program to replace it. So they're planning to have that until about 2050, at which point that tank design will be 80 years old. So, I mean, I'm just throwing a lot of you know facts and commentary out there, but in talking about China and how we deal with an aggressive expansion as China, a form of government that is inherently repressive, uh, that imposes its will on its neighbors, it keeps the upper hand on trade relationships. How do you push back on that? You know, how do we maintain our alliance structure and meet our treaty obligations with countries like South Korea and Japan and the Philippines and, and help Taiwan, a thriving economic democratic country, you know, protect itself uh, if we allow ourselves to become ever more weak and we fail to address these shortfalls and dedicate the resources, a lot of that is money, but also a lot of it is just you know, political or diplomatic activism in the sense, right? That you're you're following your rhetoric with with diplomatic engagement, with presence, with visits, you know, those sorts of things that reassures people. If we're not doing that, then we're going to lose this battle uh, with China. And I know we'll get more into that as we talk about, you know, what is the path to victory? How do we secure our interests? And I really want to reserve as much time as possible for, uh, you know, talking with the audience and talking with you, you know, specifically, Shoshana. So I think I'll, I'll leave that there. 
and 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 you you know prompt me for maybe what I've misstated or if I haven't addressed something, and we'll see where the conversation goes. I think you're on mute. I can't hear you. Um, I would I would never suggest that you were wrong on any of those things. I mean, it all makes it all makes sense to me. So let's start with a question or a thought about the U.S. defense budget, which is a combination of lots of congressional committees and lots of senators and congressmen, all of whom I'm assuming want us to come out the way we should come out and secure our interests and protect our friends and allies. And they put in this year. billion. It is more than the president asked for. Um, And you look at a number like that and you say, well, boy, that's just a whole lot of money. Is it buying what we need? Maybe it's too much money if it doesn't do the things we want. And maybe it's not enough money if it doesn't do the things we want. How do you figure out what you need and then what to spend? Well, what you need has to be both threat-based, you know, who might you have to operate against and what are their capabilities and how big is their military. So that's one measure. Uh, another factor that, that has to be seriously considered is do you want to be able to do more than one thing in one place at one time, right? So if we have an obligation to NATO member states, that says that you have to reserve something to respond to an act of war or aggression on the European continent, you know, the North Atlantic region. We've seen and are seeing what Russia is doing in Ukraine and how it is threatening the three Baltic states and the Nordic countries, you know, Finland, Sweden, um, um, uh, uh, the Scandinavian tier up there, Norway, uh, what it's uh, threatening against Hungary and Romania um, in the uh, Baltic Sea. I mean, the... um, um, uh, Black Sea region, you know, what is it doing with Georgia? So these are very real problems on the continent, and we have to dedicate some amount of resource there. Uh, you mentioned Israel. I mean, what a wonderful state uh, with which the United States has enjoyed a long relationship. Uh, what if Iran becomes even more aggressive, more so than its sponsorship of terrorist organizations like Hezbollah and Hamas? which have amassed hundreds of thousands of rockets. Can you imagine Iran achieving nuclear power status, which it is intent on doing? How would we deal with that? And then you've got this issue we're talking about with China and its neighbor, North Korea, or if a war breaks out between Pakistan and India, uh, there's always the potential for that. That roils global markets. Would we have to be involved in some form or fashion? So it's this idea of core national interests, where are those at in the world, how geographically you know, diverse and distant they are from each other. And if you have a small military, it makes it very, very difficult you know, to do more than one thing. So where we're currently at is a military that is barely large enough to handle one conflict like a Ukraine or a desert storm or an Iraqi freedom, barely able to do that we would have to invest everything and not have anything left over. Well, there's no deterrent value in that, right? And it and it and it um, it prompts opportunism uh, from our chief uh, competitors or enemies to do that. So, you know, what is the capability of the threat? What are U.S. core interests? And then something that is almost never talked about is how have things changed over the years? So, you know, looking back to the 1970s and 1980s and the last years of the Cold War. 
how much did it cost to produce an airplane or a ship or a soldier that was competent on the battle space and that was able to deal with the not only the countering platforms, you know, uh, fighter versus fighter, but but the anti-platform weapons, you know, an anti-aircraft missile system or an anti-armor system. And so what Capitol Hill, Congress, administrations don't talk about is how that fight has changed and how modern technology has made the anti-platform weapons just incredibly lethal uh, against any platform that they're shot against how much less expensive they are than the platforms that they're meant to kill, and how the United States is inherently platform dependent, right? So China can field, uh, and they have thousands of anti-ship missiles and anti-aircraft missiles uh, for a fraction of the cost of the ship or the airplane that they would be used against. The United States has to have ships and airplanes just to get to that theater and across a three-week transit across the Pacific Ocean. So we are we are dependent on these larger forces that are many times more expensive than the weapons that would be used against them. Um, I've done some research to do some comparative analysis. Accounting for inflation, you know, a dollar in 1980, for example, versus a dollar today, so adjusting for inflation, it costs 16 times as much money to outfit a soldier today as it did back at the end of the Vietnam War. You know, better body armor, medical kits, optics, the weapon system, all those sorts of things, 16 times as much. Well, we haven't increased defense spending by 16 times, you know, accounting for inflation. It costs four or five times as much to buy a replacement tank, <clears throat> ship, or airplane as would have been the case in the late 1970s. When we look back at the Cold War, the lower end of average spending was about 5% of GDP. Today, on a $20 trillion economy, if you were spending 5%, the low end, that would easily be a $1 trillion budget. So when we talk about $835 billion, I mean, that's an eye-watering amount of money. I completely buy that, right? But if you look at a percentage of what we have spent in the past, the cost of producing things today, the implications of modern technologies where sensors and weapons are better, you have to have a military that is um, relevant in that environment, you know, in size, in salaries. You know, we pay our service members more and we have a better quality of life for them than uh, somebody who would have been dragooned in the service, you know, in a draft in the 60s and 70s, right? We want the all-volunteer force. Well, you have to be competitive with talent, right? So my point is, as a superpower and going out into the world and securing our interests, you have to shoulder that burden. And so in the past 30 years, where the Cold War was over, we've been conducting operations against terrorists, you know, the Taliban, Al-Qaeda, Islamic State with no air force, no Navy, no significant land power. And we've been using our military uh, without any interruption. You know, they had no ability to interdict or to frustrate resupply or the deployment of forces or shoot down airplanes or anything. So we've been using up our inventories, using up our people and equipment against essentially non-entities in terms of the viability of our country, right? 
And now with the reemergence of, of Russia on the world stage and with the continued growth and modernization of the Chinese military, what we are spending on defense is just not enough. And, and, and the American public has been uh, made comfortable the degraded state of our military because it was perceived that there weren't any negative consequences uh, in, in having what we have and doing what we wanted to do. So I hope we don't have to have negative consequences to bring the people around. One would hope that Congress would take this on before we see negative consequences. It seems to me also, and maybe you could address this, that all the money um, is vying between readiness, things that we need to do tomorrow morning, and how we allocate money for future purposes. You talked about uh, upgraded technology and upgraded things that our soldiers get and the things that we need. And, you know, we can talk about hypersonic missiles. I don't want to get right. into the technology of that, but it seems to me that on the one hand, you have to spend for immediate readiness. If something happens tomorrow morning, you have to deal with it, but you also have to spend for the future. So two questions. One, how are we doing on those two things? And two, has the Ukraine war sapped some of that immediate readiness? We have been supplying with them with an awful lot of stuff. Are we replacing it? Are we making sure that tomorrow morning we wake up and we're good? Yeah, I'll go to the second one first, because uh, it's just so fresh in everybody's mind. And, and we as a people have lost any kind of perspective on what real war is like. You know, it's ravenous appetite, it's consumption of people and materials, how difficult it is to, you know, to win or to stop it from happening. I mean, how destructive it is. If you look at the combined contributions of Western nations to Ukraine to make it possible for them to stay in the fight, just in the last six months, we have contributed collectively as much as the entire annual defense budget for the country of France. In two days or three days, the Ukrainians have fired as many munitions as are in the entire inventory of Great Britain, right? Uh, we've had some Japanese military officers come through Heritage uh, just a couple of months ago, and they're talking about munitions inventories in Japan. And they said in terms of air power, you know, the missiles and bombs that you would put on an airplane, they have enough in their inventory, right, sitting on shelves for three flights or three sorties per airplane, and then they're out. So they could take the Japanese Air Force, fly it three times, and completely out of ordinance, right? So people have allowed their inventories, to include in the United States, but most certainly in Europe, to decline to such a point that it, it really calls into question whether or not we would be able to conduct a military operation against a major opponent or enemy force and be able to sustain that for any length of time. We have given Ukraine one million artillery rounds. We have given them a third of our anti-tank munitions and about a third of our anti-air munitions, just Stinger missiles. The U.S. military hasn't bought a Stinger missile in 17 years. Raytheon, the company that makes them, says that most of their supplier base has gone out of business because if you're not buying a product, the company that makes that product goes out of business, right? So if we wrote them a check today, they could have the first replacement missiles back to the military in three years, three years, right? Uh, at the end of the Cold War, there were 51 major defense contractors. Today, there were only five. So when we talk about readiness, 
the reality of warfare, again, all of that has been hidden from the American public. So you could take an Air Force fighter pilot flying an F-16 over Afghanistan, do his pattern at 20 or 25,000 feet, drop a GPS-guided bomb on some you know, Taliban enemy force and then go back to the air base, right? But that kind of flying doesn't prepare you for flying against an enemy's integrated air defense system or flying against another enemy aircraft. During the Cold War, pilots flew in excess of 200 hours a year to be able to do that. Today, the average Air Force fighter pilot is getting 120 hours or less. The F-35, which is the newest self-fighter being produced, pilots in some of those squadrons are getting 75 hours, okay? The Army would say that its brigades, its big combat units are ready, but it's focusing its training at the company level. So for an audience not familiar with military organizations, brigades are composed of battalions, battalions are composed of companies. So they're focusing their training two levels down and expecting that when you go to war, you can aggregate all these pieces together and somehow where it's an effective force where orchestration of movements, synchronization of a lot of subordinate and adjacent units, and the staff work needed to make all that happen uh, is somehow going to magically be effective, right? So again, 30 years of peace and prosperity, the consumption of military power without replacing it, the high use of things like planes and ships. If you have half the size of the fleet, and you're using it the same amount you did when you had twice the size of that fleet, it means you're using your crews and your ships twice as much, and you're wearing it out twice as fast, right? So these are significant challenges, and our defense budget and balancing readiness, you can't get rid of that. You have to replace equipment that's being worn out, so you have to plan against the future. It's actually both. Right? You can't sacrifice one to get the other because that's not the way war works and it's not the way the world works. So every time something new comes in, like hypersonics that you mentioned, or weaponized satellites or unmanned systems, directed energy, those are additive, right? The things that you have to account for in addition to all of the stuff that's currently in inventory. And as we're seeing in Ukraine, conventional artillery armored vehicles, you know, anti-tank munitions, machine guns, and mortars. It sounds so quaint, you know, so old-fashioned, and yet that's what's doing all the destruction. So your defense budget has to account for all of that, maintaining what you currently have, introducing the new stuff, and making sure that the force has enough wherewithal, you know, the money, the fuel, the munitions, working pieces of equipment, that it can maintain current readiness because you never know when it's going to be called upon. And to think that we can take a holiday and we'll never have to use our military until the mid-2030s, I think is a very high-risk, foolish proposition. So the defense budget has not kept pace with all of this. We operate globally, unlike any other country which operates locally. And if we want to continue to be a superpower, and have peace and prosperity here at home, you have to have a military that's up to the challenges of dealing with the world as it is. So let's talk about the world as it is, or not. A lot of people have sent in questions about specific weapon system, but I'm gonna clump them all together sure. and say that 
among the things that we learned in Ukraine is that a lot of Russian weapons were protected. They weren't what they purported to be. I think we believe the Russians were, at least in the military sphere, um, high-tech and capable people. They now look much less capable. First question, what do we know about the Chinese and how do we know it and what should we worry about? And secondly, yes, we're short. No, we're not ready. But is our technology, is our capability what it ought to be? So is it a question for us of more money in the budget to go back to Raytheon and say, stingers, please? Right. Um, or are we not as good as those guys are? Did Russia teach us something? Yeah, so uh, the technology and whether equipment is good or not is one part of that. The other part is how is that used? So if the Russians had fairly modern tanks, which they did, but they decide to use them in foolish ways by keeping them roadbound, not conducting armor operations and weather and across terrain that well supports that, well, you can take a magically modern tank constricted to a road and make it very vulnerable to an anti-armor ambush. So what Russia did tactically and operationally was just flat out stupid, and they wasted a lot of their inventory by how they conducted those initial months of operations. In terms of the effectiveness of the weapons themselves, how many times has Ukraine lost power, right? So Kyiv and a lot of these other major cities are without power, potable water, uh, transportation grids are being destroyed, communications networks are being taken out. So even with a dumb munition, you know, an artillery round or a mortar, if it lands on the right spot, it can cause a lot of damage. So technologically, I think the Russians still have a lot of really good gear that they have been using foolishly, right? So that pertains to the human factor, you know, leadership, decision-making, um, how your command structure operates. Um, have they been lying to themselves? So they go out each year and do these really large, you know, war fighting exercises. At the end of that, uh, rest assured, they all went back to Vladimir Putin and touted how good they were. And it was a success, right? And a lot of chest beating, right? Well, that's, you know, playing against themselves and manufacturing stories from this, you know, really well-orchestrated exercise. You take that force and now put it in an actual cauldron of war, and you can't fool anybody. I mean, the reality is what it is. So we've seen a lot of vulnerabilities in the Russian military uh, that you wouldn't have known were it not for an actual war. So prior to a war, you have to look at the state of their equipment. Is it modern? Uh, do they have a lot of it? In other words, can they take losses even with foolishness and remain in the fight, which is what the Russians are doing? So now as we apply that that uh, paradigm against China, almost all of their stuff is new equipment. You know, they've been building new stuff with new technologies for the last 10 or 15 years. The ships coming out of shipyards are not shipyards from the 1960s or 70s, right? This is modern gear with modern radar systems and weapons. They are producing fifth generation or stealthy aircraft. Uh, they have tripled the size of their nuclear weapons inventory just in the last few years. Uh, they have uh, doubled the size of their Navy. All this is new stuff. The Chinese have been paying attention to what the United States has been doing for the last 30 years. You know, what occurred in Desert Storm? Remember the 100-hour ground war? 
that followed uh, something like a 54-day air campaign, uh, what we did in the Balkans, uh, you know, Sarajevo, Bosnia, those sorts of things, uh, what we did again in 2003 against the Iraqi military, uh, our operations in Afghanistan, as horribly bungled as they were at the end, the fact that we conducted operations for 20 years in a country thousands of miles away, nobody else could have done that. So the Chinese have been serious about studying us. They're building new equipment. Um, they're exercising. They've got carrier, aircraft carrier operations now. Uh, so again, again, I keep using this word serious. They're serious about that. What is the reality in combat effectiveness? Who knows? I mean, the Chinese last war was in the 70s against Vietnam, and they didn't do too well at that, right? So they don't have a history of military operations themselves. But are we willing to risk the fact that they're not competent, right, and hold back on modernizing and expanding our force? Again, I think it's a real risk to being run, because even a semi-competent military, if they have enough gear enough weapons, enough munitions can still kind of bulldoze their way, you know, with just blunt force trauma um, in, in taking an objective. You know, if they significantly outnumber Taiwan, do they really have to be exquisite and nuanced in how they go about doing that? If the United States has minimal combat power and it takes us a month uh, to reinforce, and if your basing structure is so limited, that it's not easy to get something repaired or replenished in the heat of battle in that part of the world. So I think you have to look at these enemies, what their capacity is, whether the capability is modern enough, and at least as an entering argument, you have to presume that they are at some level competent, right? And then uh, include that into your planning unless you can uh, categorically disprove that assumption. Okay, so someone sent it to us. Uh, the Marine Corps Commandant, General Berger, told a group of journalists, everybody around this table should not be comfortable with where we are or the rate at which we're moving on preparing for a potential uh, invasion of Taiwan by China. So the question, there are two questions. First of all, why is the defense of Taiwan uh, a U.S. national interest? And secondly, isn't there a case to be made that by arming Taiwan or encouraging Taiwan to arm itself or doing the things we need to do to make them more robust? We are actually um, pulling the Chinese toward war as opposed to deterring them from war. And there's a little bit of that in Ukraine as well, where the Russians say, well, you know, one of the reasons all this happened is it's NATO's fault because they kept putting weapons in Ukraine. Uh, why are we doing it? And that's a real conundrum. You know, I mean, it's a very difficult problem to unravel. Um, if you didn't provide uh, any military support and the target country is perceived as weak, well, then the other, the aggressor country like China vis-a-vis -vis Taiwan would just simply move in uh, against no opposition. Okay, so why should we care about that? Well, I mean, there is this, this collection of free market, free enterprise, you know, democratic republic sorts of states. We think that provides a better way of life, better trading partners. Uh, it enhances human creativity, freedom, liberty, all those sorts of things that we value, as opposed to a people that have to live in an authoritarian state. And that was the nature of the Cold War, right? Communism, autocracy, 
repressive regimes keeping people in prison versus a free and open West. And so I think looking at Taiwan versus mainland China, there, there's kind of a, a, a smaller version of that ongoing. Shouldn't it be to the Taiwanese to determine their own future, right? Well, it's kind of like Israel. You know, Israel in a very difficult neighborhood, it's up to Israel to secure its own capabilities. And they do that so remarkably well with all the resources they have at hand. But if they're surrounded by half a dozen states that don't want them to be there, isn't it helpful for others to help them out, you know, to show the torch of liberty, okay? So I think there is an analogous condition in Taiwan. If China were to take over Taiwan, does it really hurt the West or the United States? Well, it depends on how you look at that. From a geostrategic standpoint, if if mainland uh, PRC China is able to take over Taiwan, right, that republic, then that becomes national territory. As they then look at their exclusive economic zone, as they look now at Taiwanese airfields and ports to base additional military power, it allows them to push their sphere of influence even more widely, you know, strewn or indirectly distributed than they are now. So if you think that there are things like fishing rights that are being contested between China and the Philippines and Japan and other countries, uh, imagine them now controlling Taiwan and pushing out further those exclusive economic waters, their territorial waters. So it gives them a hugely advantageous uh, geographic position uh, if they get a hold of that. If Taiwan is the world's leader in chip design for computer systems that are used in everything that the modern world depends on now, right? Other forms of advanced manufacturing, China now gets a hold of that in addition to what they're already producing for Western markets, they would have an overwhelmingly dominant position on the key technologies that undergird modern society. You know, so do we want to see that sort of outcome? Do we want to see them emboldened? So if Russia wins in Ukraine, is able to control the Black Sea, most of the grain that feeds markets in the Middle East and Africa, Vladimir Putin is able to report to his people, see, we have reclaimed land that has rightfully been Russia's. Doesn't that embolden him to be even more aggressive, you know, to set his sights on Romania and Hungary and, you know, Lithuania and Estonia, right? So, you know, a, a ravenous bully is never satisfied. You know, when they get a win, it just feeds that appetite to get more. They never rest on their laurels. So when we think about China, should China be rewarded for aggressive behavior? Should, should its odious, you know, repressive regime be able to extend its writ over more people, damaging, you know, economies that, that play so well in the global free market? I mean, does that make sense? So I think there are these larger issues that are at stake in terms of Taiwan uh, trying to defend its own interests. Uh, in other countries of like mind, uh, wanting to come uh, into league with it and supporting it and sending a message to China that, that, that your very aggressive, uh, penetrating, uh, repressive sorts of, of governance philosophies and how you treat your people, that's not going to expand. And we're going to do what we could do to keep that contained, just as we tried to contain communism uh, during the days of the Cold War. And if we don't contain it, somebody's written into us that um, 
G went to Saudi Arabia, which is, I think, a way of, of the Saudis saying they don't have enough confidence in the United States. They are not sure what we will do for them or with them. And so maybe they better hedge their bets by talking to China. Something new for the Saudis. So, yeah, I guess if you don't reassure your friends and allies, uh, other friends and allies start to worry about what you're doing. Yeah, you know, and on that Saudi point, I mean, there's so many things that we don't agree with, you know, public executions and hangings and cutting the hands off people and, you know, forcing your women to dress a certain way. It's just horrible, right? Uh, and yet they are who they are, and they do provide so much, such a large percentage of, of, of world uh, energy, right? So we might not buy a lot, but other people do. And it, it's a, a fungible commodity that affects global price anything. So, uh, it, you know, with our president currently uh, talking about, um, you know, the crown prince being a murderer, that we're going to isolate the kingdom, make it a pariah state. Well, if you're the Saudi royal family, do you want to continue to do friendly business with the West? Or do you decide to do business with China, who isn't calling you names, Right. Uh, or India or anybody else. So that's just one of the difficulties of the real world, you know, that you would always like to align yourself with people of like mind, but the world is filled with countries that aren't exactly as we would want them to be, and we just have to deal with that in some way. Great. Um, okay, so if you were Congressman X, or maybe even the chairman of the House Armed Services Committee, what are the three things that Congress should do quickly? And do you think there's bipartisan support for any of those things, Congressman, that you would like to do? Rhetorically, there is bipartisan support for the military. Everybody will talk about the U.S. military being the greatest in the world and our men and women that serve in it. It's just you know, the exemplars of noble service serving their country, and, and we all wave the flag. The, the people are fantastic in the military. But oftentimes the military itself and social media, and especially on the progressive left side of the American political spectrum, if you only listen to them, the military is filled with misogynists, editors, with racists, with extremists. Uh, if you join the military, you're going to come out with post-traumatic stress disorder. I mean, that's what the social media narrative, especially from the American political left, left. Uh, would have you believe about the military. So there's this weird contradiction in how Congress uh, deals with the military. If I were in Congress and you could pick three things, one would be pass a defense budget on time, right? These continuing resolutions that put actual money three months or longer into the fiscal year means that it was spent inefficiently and ineffectively. It stymies the ability of the military to make necessary corrections because you're only giving it three quarters of a year to take action instead of a full year. So pass a budget on time. October 1st seems to catch everybody by surprise. And yet it's been the start of the fiscal year for decades, right? So I don't know why they can't get their act together uh, other than they keep loading on the defense bill with all the sorts of things that aren't related to defense. The second one would be an immediate investment in the production of munitions. So if our inventories are down to the point where they are strategic war reserves, you know, for instance, the, the Marine Corps normally keeps about 70,000 rounds of artillery ammunition on hand for training and for you know, crises or contingencies. 
I was told by a friend of mine that the current inventory in the core is only 14,000. So that difference between 70 and 14 is all the stuff that are as part of the package that we've given to Ukraine. You have to replenish those. You know, you have to replenish missiles and rockets and uh, and mortar rounds and all those sorts of things. So that would be an easy lift to dedicate a lot of money to uh, buttressing up the munitions production lines and it would give these companies that have been scraping by at minimum sustained rates to start expanding their production lines, which are needed for war, but also for realistic training every year, right? So passing the budget and immediate investment in munitions, and then providing some kind of, a, of an assuredness, you know, a surety in multi-year buys of equipment. So we all know that if you buy more of something, each individual unit costs less, so the taxpayer gets a better return on their money. If you're a manufacturer and you're pretty comfortable that you're going to have several years worth of business, then you're much more willing to make capital investments in production facility expansion and in hiring a workforce that often takes years to train to a level of competent you know, workflow or product productivity in the manufacturing plant. Currently, we only spend money one year at a time that fluctuates in what is being spent. And so if you're in the defense sector, you're very risk averse. Now, you can't afford to take um, stuff that you have uh, kind of put in the back for a rainy day, spend it now to produce more products that might not be but might not be bought. You know, the defense sector has one customer that's U.S. government, U.S. military. So if there isn't some kind of an assurance that multi-year buys are going to occur, we will never see the expansion in productivity and capacity that we actually need for our military to get healthy. And that seems to me doable. I mean, you're not yes. talking about things that we cannot do, you're talking about things that we ought to be able to do. And maybe that's part of our job as citizens is to say to our Congress people, do the things that you can do first. Don't. Yeah, I mean, military power is like an insurance policy, right? So we all carry insurance on our house, houses and our, and our health and our cars because you can't tell me when you're going to get sick or your house might get hit by a hurricane or tornado or somebody might T-bone you in an intersection because they ran a red light. But we know from our own experience that those things do happen. And if you wait till they happen, you can't buy insurance, right? I mean, it, it's too late to do that. And now you have to suffer the full expense of dealing with whatever that damage is to health, home, or auto, right? In warfare, you can't predict when a war will occur, where it's going to occur on the planet, against whom, or how long it's going to happen. I can't tell you that, you know, in the year 2028, we are going to go to war with China. It will last three months. And this is who it's going to involve. I mean, I can't promise that. But if you look at our history as a country, and if you look at the history around the world, wars do happen. And once they do happen, you don't have the three or four years needed to then build the military that you actually have to have to secure yourself and to win that conflict. So it's money that needs to be spent every year. A lot of that is consumed every year in fuel and munitions because you have to have a trained ready force. As you're using that equipment, you're wearing it out. So you have to iteratively replace that. All that takes money. And you have to have a sufficient capacity in the force to do all the things that we have already talked about, right? 
So this is it doable? Absolutely. Have we done it in the past? Yes, we have. So why don't we do it today? Well, again, it's because of that 30 years, we really haven't had to think about existential threats. And we didn't face really well-armed opponents like we now face in China, uh, a soon-to-be nuclear Iran, and a, a Russia who will rebuild with a vengeance and looking to avenge its losses. You know, that's what we're dealing with today. But people will vote on issues that affect them most immediately. So subsidized health care, subsidized education, low tax rates, you know, subsidized mortgages, you know, all these things that politicians will run on to get elected to office. And what do they sacrifice? Investing in the insurance policy or military, which is the only thing that really secures the viability of our country, not just now, but in years to come. Okay, here's the hardest question for you, because it's our last question. And people who listen know that I like to go out on a positive note, but I'm not sure how you're going to get anything positive out of the next question. Um, But that's your problem. Some people have written that China is a rising power, but it is at the same time a declining power based on demographic decline, uh, economic bubbles like the real estate market and the zero COVID problems that they have. So. Is it both, number one? And number two, if it is a declining power, does that make it more likely that it will try to reach out and do damage to us before it completely declines? Does it become more dangerous if Xi Jinping or the party or whatever's running China decides that they're in big trouble? So it's it's yes to both. That's the simple answer. Yes, it can be both uh, a rising and a declining power. And yes, closing window of opportunity makes it a more dangerous opponent. So, you know, all the things you just talked about, the desertification of arable land, water problems, um, uh, a declining population demographically because of one child and these other sorts of things. It's getting older uh, well before it's going to get rich enough to support an aged population. It's it's, It's an issue similar to what Japan is already dealing with. Right with its centenarian population and all those, so it does have these these major issues that are not easily solvable. Most analysts view that they will really come to fruition in the 2030s. So that's a problem. It's also rising. Look at its investments in artificial intelligence, surveillance technologies, uh, the tripling, almost quadrupling of its nuclear capabilities, uh, building more ships in a year or two that are in the entire British Royal Navy every year. I mean, that's how rapidly their Navy is expanding, and it's all new technology build. So in the immediacy of today and in the next decade, a very dangerous, very capable, very wealthy country. Beyond the 2030s, all those trends start to turn, right? Which then leads to the second part of your question comment, is it more dangerous? So if Xi Jinping and the ruling Communist Party view a window of opportunity that is likely to start closing by the mid-2030s, they either act now or they lose the opportunity to act at all, right? So right now, the West is expending all of its munitions and its capital supporting Ukraine, Uh, A lot of those combat resources and attention are focused on Europe because of what Russia is doing in Ukraine. It opens up space and opportunity for China. 
its military power is growing by leaps and bounds, America's military power is aging and shrinking. We talked briefly about the army going from 770,000 just 30 years ago to 460,000 today to 445,000 by the end of next year. They missed their recruiting goal by one third. They fell 25,000 recruits short. Only 23% of American youth 17 to 24 are even eligible to join the military if they wanted to. The other 77% cannot because of criminal records, substance abuse, obesity, and physical and mental health problems. Of that whole population, fewer than one in 10, I think it's 9% have shown any interest whatsoever in joining the military. So this recruiting crisis is also affecting the status or posture of the U.S. military. So if you're in China and you're seeing all that, you see the decline of the West militarily, it's aging and shrinking. You see your own decline occurring, say, 10 or 15 years from now. Doesn't that incentivize you to move sooner than later? So I think this is a period of maximum danger that we are not accounting for in our defense policies and certainly within Congress and the administration. This is not an optimistic answer. Well, so, here's the optimistic answer. Well, let me though. Ask you, can we deal with it? We yeah. To- yeah. So the optimistic answer is Americans have shown an amazing ability that once confronted with a real problem that they understand, they respond like no other country on the planet. You know, look at the outpouring of support uh, post 9-11, a community support uh, where the people turn out in the wake of tornadoes in the Midwest or a hurricane coming up, you know, the, the East Coast. You know, people will send themselves and money and groceries and all these other sorts of things to help out, but they have to be spurred to action. And the larger level, we were going to win the Cold War because the seeds of destruction were sown into the very form of government of Russian communism, right? That regime. But look how long it lasted nonetheless, you know, 50 years, right? So as long as the West maintained its free market principles, its liberal Western philosophies and forms of government, right, we were going to win that. And I think the same can be said for China, that if we get our act together, right, that that the way we interact with other countries in general, our value systems, the innovation that comes from the creativity made possible by a free liberal um, uh, Western order, right? That form of government in our culture, right? That that is going to win, but you have to stay in the fight long enough, right? We can't implode from inside. And so my great fear is that domestically in the United States with the culture wars, the erosion of values and, and principles, the fratricide that's going on within our political parties, uh, that is hamstringing us internally. So we have it within ourselves to win this battle. We are more resource rich than any other country on the planet. All the stuff we have here at home, we just have to be willing to unleash that potential, you know, I'm and to be American we want ourselves to be. I'm going to stop you because you got to an optimistic point. (laughs) I agree with it. I think we can do what we set our minds to do. And that is a great place to stop. Um, As we come to the end of the program, I think we've learned a lot. I don't, I, I feel like I know more, but I'm really not happier. So thank you for that because I don't think we should be happy. I think Americans should be looking at our representatives 
and look at what we need to tell them about what we need as citizens. And we need to be defended and we need to think that our allies are going to be defended. And that's part of our job as citizens. And for that, I thank you. You gave us a great look at what's going on and what we need to do. So thank you, Dakota Wood. Everybody else, we'll see you next week. And uh, thank you.